So does it feel good to be back in town? It does. I'm not sure if I have legs anymore, but um, because we did. Just... <laughs> it just sounds like such an interesting thing I mean, to you say. Know. Like, oh, not because I can't there was anything that happened, but that because I went snowshoeing up to Lost Lake, which it's just it's this lake that's lost. It's at ten thousand feet, <laughs> and we had to snowshoe the whole way. It was really fun. Yeah. But I don't have legs anymore. I've never <clears throat> snowshoed. You use very different muscles than... Um, like hiking? Yeah. Because oh. hiking and walking, it's like a lot of calf and a lot of like... I don't know. I don't know which part of your thigh you use when you walk. I don't think about it. But when <laughs> snowshoeing, because you kind of have to stand a little bit spread-legged because of the size of the snowshoes. Yeah. And... You're, like, lifting, like, I don't know. It's different, but it is a lot of your butt and a lot of upper thigh, especially, like, the inside upper thigh. Okay, kind of sounds like the perfect, leg butt workout. Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, it, it was incredible. Especially inner thigh area. That's, uh, yeah. that's a hard area to get. Well, snowshoe. Snowshoe. All right. So. Well, hey, everyone. Hello, hello. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. I'm Tyler. And, um, yeah, Tyler just got back in town from Denver. It was really fun. I, um, I don't know. I could see myself in Denver one day. I know. I told you you would absolutely you love you it. You very much did. I've been telling you this for years. Yeah. Denver's one of my absolute favorite cities. Uh, my hair looks better in Denver than it in oh, any other city. My, my skin the best? <laughs> cleared up. And I was like, what is this? It's it's called, I don't know, it's not humidity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and but, it's um, perfect for oily skinned people like us. I know. Well, even like the day I got there, so about an hour after my plane landed... Uh, the blizzard struck. Oh, yeah. And But even before and after, it was not that humid. And I was like, huh. So, I like, know. the friend I stayed with, she has, like, three humidifiers in the house because apparently that's it's what so you do dry. in Denver. I know. You want the opposite of what mm-hmm. you have. No, Denver's phenomenal. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my very best friends lives there. And I love going to visit her. Yeah. And just, it's one of my favorite cities. It was great. I loved so. it. But anyways, so glad to be back. Which, honestly, I love traveling. I love seeing everyone. We've we've each separately and together traveled a lot the first, like, so far in 2019. I know. Um, I feel like it's been two weeks of the year that I've been home. uh, Yeah, I think it's been two or three for me. We'll be out of town again this weekend, Uh, seeing family, which will be great. It will be. But But it's just another another long trip. But hey. It'll be good, though. But yeah, no, I'm glad to be back in Austin. Not glad that it's going to be like in the 80s this week, but... It's so weird. The weather has been so weird because it's rainy and gloomy, but humid and hot. And then randomly it's 20 degrees and then it's back up to 70. Like everyone's like sick it. right now. Oh, because, yeah. like, not only is the weather doing that, but there's just, like, shit going around. But it's true. And there's dead clams in the water pipes, but... Making the water um, stink. Which, oof. Anyways, so, <laughs> yes, leave it at glad to be back in Austin, which Austin is a great transition to the next part because it's on my chipping address, and no, that was a terrible transition, but we're going to roll with it. Oh, because... okay, okay. I'm just looking at you like, <laughs> where are you going with this? Because I wanted to let y'all know of a super awesome deal we have yes. in our merch store. 
So from February 21st through 25th, if you enter the code SAVE15, you can get 15% off your entire order at checkout. So just once you're in that checkout page, you'll uh, be prompted to enter any kind of coupon code SAVE15. Capitalization and stuff does not matter, but it yep. is S-A-V-E and the number is 1-5. You can save 15% and it's also a great opportunity to get something with our new design on it. Yes. That was custom made for us by the amazingly talented Vicky Lester. So you could check out her other designs, including ours, on her yes. Instagram page. Yes, and on her Etsy store, she has some super, super uh, amazing products, especially like the true crime pin yes. and uh, sticker and stuff. So anyway, yeah, definitely time to get your merch. Um, mm-hmm. We'll always let you all know anytime we decide to do some special deal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's 15% it's pretty awesome. True. And don't forget about our Patreon page where you can go to find extra content, murder mm-hmm. minis, um, the stickers. I know you guys are really excited about those. Yes. Got to be a Patreon member. But Patreon is something that, um, you know, we really appreciate you guys being a part of. It's how we're able to do this podcast. And we have a new Cabernet Sauvignon convict. Yes, we do. Aubrey. Thank Aubrey, you thank you so thank much. You, thank you. We love um, you. You are a sweet angel. Yes, and we are super excited to um, hear what you want to do for I your know. topic. So just uh, send us a quick email or Facebook or Patreon message yeah. um, about what you want your topic to be. And yeah, because yeah. Uh, since she's a Cabernet Sauvignon convict, she gets to pick a topic she for an upcoming director. episode. Director for an episode. Um, and also gets free sticker. Free just sticker. Uh, thank you note from us. Obviously, thank this, you. the social shout out, the on-air shout out. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, another, like I mentioned earlier, our murder minis, we now have like long ones on there. We're going to ever so often do full episodes and there'll be Patreon only content. Mm -hmm. So don't forget to uh, go check that out. Also make sure to subscribe to us on your listening platform of choice. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever, um, I guess, platform you listen to us on. If you are able to. Make sure to subscribe so you get notified as soon as our episodes go out. Yeah. Um, well, I have a current news thing I wanted to chat with you about. Okay. So I feel like this always happens with most Netflix things yeah. that I am a week or two behind the crowd. That's true. I'm just, well, and you're like four years behind. That's also true. I still haven't <laughs> even seen um, Ozark. Or oh, that movie, the... or that show is so good. I know it's like so season good. three now, and I'm like, oh, Jason oh, Bateman no. is like or, uh, Pretty Little Lies. I haven't seen that either. I, I that's real good. love Jason Bateman. He is my like hot dad crush, and oh, yeah. I love him so much. But so there's a new documentary that's been on for maybe about a month or so called Abducted in Plain Sight. Mm-hmm. And I didn't watch it originally because I was like, oh, okay, you know, kidnapping and the bunny tapes had just come out. So I was watching that one and there were just a couple others that I was finishing up. Well, it's just like an hour and a half long. So it's not not too oh. not too lengthy, easy to watch while you're, you know, whatever, um, even after work. And it is so good. I can't even begin to describe how shocking and surprising and like things coming out of left field it just i don't want to give any spoilers because it's literally so good 
that if I say one thing, it's going to ruin one of those like shock and awe moments. Okay. But just know it is so worth it. Does it is it, so does freaking it focus bizarre. on like one abduction or like one event or it, is that also something you can't give away? It focuses on one family. Okay. And an abduction within that family of one okay. of their it's a family, it's one of their daughters. They have like three girls and one of the daughters is kidnapped, but the details in the story just go so far beyond anything you would ever imagine. Okay. So I highly recommend it. All right. I um, haven't watched it and won't promise that I will. <laughs> you just need to support I Netflix. Just, I am just correctly setting expectations. I'm. Oh, this is my me? expectation management piece. It sounds great. Probably not going to watch it. <laughs> if you're just being honest, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, do you have any current news or anything? No, but I have this week's topic. Oh, I, I mean, yeah, you know. do that. Um, so this week... Our topic, because um, Brittany won last week, uh, I got to choose topic, and I chose hidden bodies, or killers who hide their victims' bodies, bodies <laughs> <laughs> I guess. It's pretty self-explanatory. But yeah. um, I always think it's so interesting. We've talked about it before in the Eileen Wernos case and cases before that it's so difficult to convict on a murder charge when there's, if, no, if there's body. no no body or yeah. no like substantial evidence of like okay the body is not here but here's 17 gallons of blood right people don't have that much in them right but, or, or even times it's you know can be difficult to even determine if the person's not just missing yeah if there's no body so i you know so obviously in a lot of these cases um that we've talked about in episodes past you know a great deal of concealing the victim's body hiding them has been a part of a lot of it but um i i wanted to dive into that and make that more of like a focal point or Mm -hmm. um and the case i chose is very interesting uh where the body was hidden and i don't know i think it's interesting because i think when you think about it the whole is like oh of course that's like part of it's part of murdering someone. Is hiding the body. Well, and it's and, like either you care to hide the body or you don't care at all. And, and don't, it's just there. You just leave the body. Yeah. Well, because they're, I mean, you know, when you're like talking to your friends and you're, you know, all right, which one of you is the one to call if to if I need help hiding a body? Like, it, it's just culturally, it's part of it. Part like of murder. it's mm-hmm. and, Well, and there's a lot of really big murderers that. Serial killers yeah. that hide the bodies. I mean, like Ted Bundy had all of mm-hmm. his bodies on Taylor Mountain. That um, are there's well, victims there's, are still there. Yeah, victims that are still missing. Well, and then there's John Wayne Gacy who hid all of his oh, victims in the crawl spaces in his house. I yeah. mean, so just oh, the different because yeah, I mean there are definitely murders that happen and killers who leave their victims out in the open. Yeah, you know, someone shoots someone in a car. Leaves them there. Someone leaves a body in plain sight as, like, more of a statement. Yeah. Uh, But I just think the whole process of hiding someone, like, because there are so many options. There are. There's limitless. Are you going to put them in a crawl space up at Walmart in the roof? Are you going to put them in a river? Well, and also, I I feel like it's almost human nature to hide things that we don't want others to find. 
and or just I mean, to hide yeah. things to get rid yeah. of them. Um, this is a really weird example, and it's not necessarily hiding. Is this where you confess about hiding a body? No, no, no. You know how there are, you know, bodies that are hidden in homes. People hide different things in their houses. And it made me think of this really random thing. But, you know, in old medicine cabinets, how they all have, if you look at the bottom, there's this little slit, this little, like, opening in the metal. Mm. And it was for, it was like a razor disposal. But oh. you put your old razors in there, like men would, and it just goes into the house. And oh, so there have been times weird. when, like, older homes are being remodeled or taken down. And, oh, but a wand's razors And all out. these razors come out. Cause it's, that would be And it horrifying. has, like, an actual word, but, um, like, to whatever that hole is called. But it, it's just weird. And that's not necessarily hiding something, but it's just something being, like, discreetly placed away. Yeah. Um. Anyway, it's a really interesting topic, and I'm I'm ready to tell uh tell you my story for sure okay well first tell me about the wine <laughs> yes i don't will don't get ahead of yourself also i get to go first in this episode so you just do. you're gonna have to be patient i will have to be patient so um this wine is actually really exciting for this episode i know we did an italian wine last week but hey we're doing another but this one is from italy um, as most Italian wines are, I realize. I mean, yeah. <laughs> no. So my uh, best friend went to Italy last, the year before last year, I believe. And um, we are actually going this year. There's a group of us going Yalla. for our birthdays. Um, yeah. Sorry. Not Tyler. Sorry. Me and a couple of my girlfriends. But so my friend has a connection of someone there in Italy who was able to send her a case of wine. Oh my gosh. And for um, Christmas this year, she gave me a couple of bottles for us to use on our podcast. And it's just now gotten to the point to where it's time for us to do this bottle. Yes. <laughs> um. So I'm really excited about this wine. And I did a little bit of research because... It's a full-on Italian label. I had to look up, like, translations for everything. There's no description on the back. But So, sorry, side note. Have you seen the Google Translate app? Like, it will translate in real time with your phone, smartphone's camera. Oh, that's so cool. So, you just, like, open the app. It has, like, a camera setting. And you just, like, face your camera to, like, a, if there's a sign or a sheet of paper, like, a menu or something you want translated. And it'll real-time translate it. You can also, like, take pictures of things and, like, highlight words, translate it. It's amazing. I'm telling you. And you can download things and use it offline. So if you're, like, traveling to another country and you're like, oh, I'm not going to have data. How am I going to be able to, like, translate things? You can download big language files offline and have the translating ability just on your phone. That's really beneficial. Uh, I like that. I like that. Just by the way, sorry, back to Italian wine. Yes. It's in Italian. So I am very excited about this wine. It's the Inomas Moraro Veneto Merlot. And I used a few sources to find some information about Italian wines and especially the Veneto uh, region. Mm-hmm. So I l- used Wine Pair, The Kitchen, and Wine Words Wisdom. Okay. So the Veneto region in Italy is the eighth largest region and within that region alone, there are 28 DOCs and 14 DOCGs. And the difference in those, it's the way that Italian wine is graded. So okay. their quality classification under the Italian wine law. And the DOCG is the highest designation for the quality among Italian wine. Nice. So the DOC designation was introduced back in the 60s. 
And it regulates um, the production, the wine color, the permanent grape varieties, and the maximum and minimum proportions of those different types of grapes, the mm. styles, the max and minimum alcohol levels. So it's just like literally everything that goes into an Italian wine. Did you know one of the reasons why, like when you think grapes, you probably think Concord grapes, like Grape juice grapes? Yeah, just grapes. Um, and one of the reasons why you don't see that in wine is because it is a wine. That's how you make Manischewitz, which is a... Oh. Um, I don't know if it's a brand or if it's like the actual type of wine, but it is a Passover wine. Oh! So it's like made for Passover. It is alcoholic. It's so sweet. Just like so, so sweet. It's like literally like Welch's grape juice. I'm yeah. pretty sure they get the... Manischewitz is the brand. I don't know why I said I didn't know. It is the brand because it's a Passover <laughs> wine. But um, I'm pretty sure they get that Manischewitz gets their grapes from the Welch's Vineyard. Oh, yeah. So there's Does a it, fun fact for you. That is a very random fun yeah, fact. So if right you, in the middle of me describing DOC. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know what you were talking about. They like go the over grape the grape varietal. Yeah. And I was like, oh, here's a fun thing. Here's a thing I thought. But yeah. Of. So if you really like grape juice, um, you would probably really like Manischewitz. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are a total of 330 DOC wines in Italy today. Mm. And when you go to the store, a lot of the times it's on the bottle and generally it's up towards the top. You see like the seal. It's on Italian wines and I'll see DOC or DOCG. And yeah. that's a way to know that it's a really good wine. They And they're, you can find dirt cheap wines that have that on there. So it's not uh-huh. like I'm talking like $10 bottles. Like I buy these all the time. I know. But it, it also makes me so sad for me. It's great for the people of Italy. You can buy good wine for like a euro. Uh, yeah, I'm sure this bottle is dirt cheap. I read a blog about this specific um, vineyard, mm-hmm. and you can go with like whatever the wine equivalent of a growler is, and have it filled up, and it's cheaper than gas, cheaper than petrol. Wow! Well, to get awesome. really, really good wine. It's fine. So, um, the DOCG designation was created in the '80s, and they. Wanted it to be able to differentiate from the really good wines. Mm -hmm. And so the regulations are tighter. They're more restrictive. And, of course, the the wine has to pass this in-depth technical analysis Mm -hmm. uh, for the tasting to get the official DOCG seal of approval. But so back to – so that's just the the Veneto uh, region. Like I said, they have 28 DOCs and 14 DOCGs. Mm -hmm. So it's really big, and they produce really great wines. Uh, Yeah. So the Inomas Winemaking Company is located south of Vincenza, which is um, about an hour west of Venice, or Venezia in Italian. Yeah. Which is one thing that I always found so weird. Like, why – do we have to have an American word for the a proper name of another city? I... Do you know? Because it bothers me. So I know that um, it a lot of times it'll either come down to, can you pronounce those sounds in your language and, like, readily? And yeah. can you... Or, and then the other one is, like, do, does the other language think they conquered it and they're going to call it something else? Like, Oslo's uh, old name was Christiania. Because it was 
conquered and changed the name back in the day and then they right. changed it back to the right. traditional well but, which is like um constantinople and istanbul like same yeah, place and different byzantium names. And, yeah. yeah byzantium uh, yeah you're right you're right anyway that was just super side note but it, yeah. venezia is venice in italian but um the company produces grapes that come mainly from their land and their land's about a hundred hectares and one hectare is about 2.4 acres so they've got about 240 acres of land oh, oh 2.4 yeah that's such an easy conversion to remember. I know, right? Um, anyway, so the grapes obtained from the land produce over 20 different types of wines. And you can get the wine at like retail stores straight from the company. Or you can also find it in lots of the restaurants and whatnot there in Vincenza. Yum. So when you think of Italian wine, Merlot is not one of the ones you think about. Um, it's not one that readily comes to mind, but it's growing in popularity and it is one of the major varieties among with like Cab, Sangiovese, Petit Bordeaux um, that are in the production in Tuscany I, and that go into making like a super Tuscan wine. Yeah. Merlot is part of that. I wonder what, like who decided what the main reds and the main whites is going to be. Because when you think reds, was, you think Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Pinot Noir. I think it's a grape that is... Um, it has the ability to be grown in a lot of different types of soil. Oh, that makes sense. So it can be produced more. There's more of that grape. Therefore, who the hell decided? <laughs> who made themselves king and decided that was going to be the reds? What if I want Chianti to be the next cab? Do it. Make it happen. Go to I, Italy. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've committed, y'all. Um, so Merlot is often a blending wine, mm -hmm. but some of the world's best pure Mer Merlot wines uh, come from Italian labels. Mm. Uh, Merlot grapes offer a ripe, fruity aroma and a complex, supple, full-bodied flavor. Merlot wines have a strong affinity for wood aging, um, which can really change the tannins in it if mm -hmm. they're placed in barrels and enhance a lot of the subtleties of the wine. Yeah. And Merlot has like very concentrated aromas, good fruit and acidity, long complex finishes. I mean, Merlots are generally a fruitier, softer. Yeah, they're wine. very, they have that like velvety texture. Yes. So that is enough about Italian wines. I want to get into this one now. Yes. There we go. Got it. Okay. There's nothing better than the sound of a nice pouring wine i know when you haven't had one yet i know tell me about it well and this is a nice like you know medium colored yeah has nice very like ruby yeah i would say ruby is a good um good description so have i ever talked to them how i took sommelier classes back in college you took sommelier classes back in college? To, yeah, when I was... No, um, you've never told me about this. Yeah, I was a server at a fancy restaurant and... Oh, I did know this. Yeah, I was like, you... I Sorry, swear. I was thinking like a university course. No, 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 and no, And I was no. like, wait, number no, one, how did I not cooler. know about this? <laughs> no, this one, I was a server at a fancy restaurant and, you know, as part of everything, we needed to know the best wine pairings with meals why like going into the different complexities of the food and how it matches with different complexities in the wine um yeah fun so fact to take an um, intense class yeah the the best wine for any meal is your favorite wine with your favorite meal 
Just saying. The truest True thing that. to live by. True that. Which is also something they said. I mean, they would be like, yeah. yeah, you might not recommend a Chardonnay with a big fatty steak, but if that's what someone likes, that is the perfect wine for them. And that's just so, like if you're eating like a nice piece of fish and you want a cab, yeah. you drink the damn cab. And that was when I found out I cannot drink really oak shards because they're awful. It was the only wine we had that I did not finish my glass. You're like, and ew. All basically. right. So let's... uh. Tastes damn Merlot. Yes. All right. Cheers. Wow, that is fruity. And that is a very fruity Merlot. But it has a very, like a very tannic, not aftertaste, because it's while it's still in your mouth. No, you can Because the feel first the taste tannins. is fruit, and then it like, pun, the top of your mouth with tannins. Yeah. A little, little, little nice tannin punch to the I know what you're mouth. talking about. No, this is good. This is absolutely a very easy, um, like, yeah. just evening wine to drink. This would be a, oh, shit, I already drank the whole bottle kind of wine. Absolutely. It would be. All right. Well, now we have our wine. Yes, we and, do. And um, I'm ready to hear about your case because I'm really interested to see what you picked. Okay. So my case is the disappearance of Aaron Chorney. So the sources I used, I actually only used two this time because my first source was real in-depth and I got real into it. (laughs) And it was The Bad-Tempered Boyfriend, which is season one, episode eight of Blood, Lies, and Alibis on Investigation Discovery. I am obsessed with the name of that show. That's awesome. Uh, Me too. Never heard of this show until I was doing research for this. Saw they had a documentary and I was like, uh, yes. Like, that's what I'm watching. Honestly, the way it's done, you know, some documentaries, especially documentary series, a lot of it depends on how they're done and how they're filmed. Yeah. This one was great. I was into it. All right. Perfect amount of, like, recreation and interviews. Didn't Ooh, go too heavy good. on both. Yeah. No, that's the, still it had, had a, like, that perfect yeah. recipe. Yes. Um, and then The Globe and Mail, which is a newspaper there in Manitoba. So mine takes place in Canada. Okay. So on April 27th of 2002 in Brandon, Manitoba, 18-year-old Erin Chorney was reported missing to police by her parents. Mm-hmm. Her parents were divorced and she split her time between them. She'd live one week at her dad's, one week at her mom's. They both lived in the same town, so it didn't interfere with like any school or anything. That's and good. she split it week by week. Uh, but the last time her mom had seen her was six days before on April 21st. Oh. So... Erin was a typical teen. She liked hanging out with her friends, liked being popular, going to movies. She was a bit rebellious. Um, She wanted to spend time with friends, go to parties, drink. But, I mean, yeah. I'm pretty sure in, I think in Manitoba, the drinking age is 18. It might be 19. But either way. Either way. I mean, she's She's, high school She's in high school, yeah. And she's... Kind of rebellious doesn't sound like that much, yep. but um, she she would like sneak out to go hang out with friends. Kind of rebellious. It, that sounds like how I was rebellious. You know, like where I was like, we're gonna say rebellious, quote unquote, because yeah, I did some like quote unquote bad stuff, but not really sneaking out and drinking. I was pretty much a goody two shoes that would it's do true. a couple of things and always get caught. I know, so I didn't do them. Yeah, I was the opposite. I know. I was not a goody two-shoes, but didn't get caught, so it was great. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. But see, now we're at the age where we can talk to mama about it. Hey, did you know that I snuck outside of the house sometimes and would, like, go to my friend's house and then come back a couple hours later before you woke up? Like, typical teenage stuff. 
But really, though. Yeah. What if it turns <laughs> out we're actually terrible teenagers and this is everyone realizing This is not it. the norm. <laughs> Everyone's like, you did what? Wow. I hey, family, thought that sorry happened about in that. movies. But I <laughs> guess I was wrong. No, we were, I don't think that bad of kids. Whatever. Anyway, now it was Erin. She's just an 18-year-old. Yeah. So at 7 p.m., the night of the 21st, uh, she's sitting down having dinner with her mom and her eight-year-old sister, and she gets a call from a friend uh, to, like, join them for a coffee and hang out. Oh, yeah. And she's like, cool. Peace, mom. And while Erin was really rebellious, she also was very close to her family. Like, she and her mom wouldn't always get along, but she was very close with her little sister. Yeah. So when she left, she gave her eight-year-old little sister a hug and said, you know, oh, I'll be right back. Yeah. And yeah, she didn't come home. She never came back. So at first when she didn't come home, her mom was disappointed, but not really concerned since Erin had done this before. She would go out, stay out with friends, wind up going to parties, sleep over at a friend's house, like... And come over the next morning. Yeah. Or come home. Yeah. So her mom's mostly just like disappointed, but not really concerned. Yeah. But the next day when Aaron doesn't call, she'll be a little bit concerned because while Aaron would always do this, she would always call her mom and be like, oh, hey, I'm over at Julie's house or whatever. So when her mom didn't get a call, she was like, okay, this is a little interesting. So her mom calls um, Aaron's friends, you know, some of the... Friends that were closest to her, like, oh, did have you seen her? Did you was there like a party she went to, and they had no idea. They're like, no, I haven't seen oh her. Oh my god, that's terrifying. So they're now her mom and her dad at this point, because mom has filled in dad of like what's going on. Because um, I assume that was probably also the other person she called, like, uh, is she over there? Yeah, of course. Um, so that no one knows where she is. Her friends haven't seen her. Her parents, her family hasn't seen her. They're starting to get concerned, but they didn't want to get ahead of themselves still. Because, again, she'd done this before. She'd gone and, like, gone on, like, a two or three day bender before. Like, or not a bender, but just, like... Disappeared for multiple days? Yeah. Hmm. Because they're concerned, but, like, they're not letting themselves think the worst yet. Right, because this is not something that's never happened. Yeah, and also, Brandon's a small town in Manitoba. I mean... It could be one of those things that she and some friends, you know, hopped in the car and went to Calgary to spend a couple days in the big city or Winnipeg or whatever. Yeah. Um, But still, the days are passing and they're getting a lot more concerned because at this point, she'd never not called her parents for this long. Yeah. Like, yeah. this is now, now it's, it's to the suspicious. point of like, okay, something's going on. So that's when six days later, on April 27th, they go to the police station and officially file a missing persons report. Yep. And the investigator opens a case looking for Aaron. So, you know, first step that investigators do, he begins to look into the family and friends to see if they knew anything. Mm-hmm. And according to friends, she was very close with her 22 year old boyfriend, Michael Bridges. Obviously, they're dating, so obviously they're very close. Yeah. And so the investigators were like, okay, let's talk to Michael. Because I think parents knew of him, but maybe didn't know his name or didn't have his contact info. Like right, they so they, friends. they couldn't reach out to him. Yeah. Yes. So the investigators speak to Michael, and he confirms that, yeah, he picked up Aaron from her mom's that night at about 7 
or a little after. So that was the person she probably got the call from. Yeah. Um, and they spent most of the night together hanging out. But the last time that he saw her, he said she left his house and told him that she was going to go over to a friend's house to party, hang out. And she left at about 1130 that night. Okay. So after that, police kind of hit a wall and didn't have anywhere else to go because they talked to all the friends. Yeah. Talked to everyone out of connection. And they were like, no, and, she didn't come here. You know, all basically all they got is an update of, oh, someone did see her after she left her mom's, but it was her boyfriend and she peaced out to a friend's house, which is, was, is something that's like, oh, yeah, that's very much like her. We'll go hang out with a friend's house, whatever. It is, but this so-called friend never came forward. Like, we never heard from this next where she went. Yeah. So she didn't make it to friend's house. Oh. So, again, the police wrote a brick wall. They don't really have any more leads to go on. Yeah. And so the family hosts a press conference begging anyone who knows anything to come forward if there's been any sightings, if anyone knows anything. Yeah. Like, because they're just, they're looking for their missing daughter. Yeah. So immediately tips begin pouring in from all over the country with reported sightings everywhere. Some people saying she's in Vancouver. Some people saying she's in Newfoundland. Some people saying they saw her in the U.S. Like. What? It's, there's getting tips everywhere because it's a case that now the country is very invested in. Yeah. Yeah, because she's missing. Like, this yeah. is a missing person's, like, this is not a runaway, is what it appears. Yeah. And it's a huge effort on the town's police force, because they have to take the time and go through and investigate all of the leads. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, even the ones that don't really sound credible, because what if it is? Which, one thing to note, this police department is not huge. Right. Um. I mean... Yes, Brandon is the second largest town in Manitoba after Winnipeg, but it's still only about forty to 50,000 people. Which like it's is not, not big. No, that's um, still, I would still consider that a small town. Same. In comparison to the places we've lived, oh, small yeah. town. And so all of the people sending in these tips and sightings, I mean, it's just, it's just very taxing on the police department. Of course. But again, they are still going to investigate every lead they can. I mean, yes, that's literally what every police department does. Yeah. And when it's a small town, few people, it just Mm -hmm. means they're stretched even thinner. But police officers are insanely, insanely dedicated. Oh, yeah. And so I just, I mean, I think about like Jackie and when we talk to her. Yeah. And how she literally has her full-time job and then she would go home and still work because that was the only time that she had to work on cold cases. Yeah. So. It's insane, the dedication and drive that so many of these detectives, investigators have. Yeah. It's one of those, like, you, you're you never not working. So after a while investigating these leads and looking into them, they don't really lead anywhere. None of Damn. the sightings are her. Again, the case hits another dead wall. Dang it. So the only thing they, so they're like, okay, we're at an impasse again. What do we already know? Basically, the only thing they know for certain is that Michael Bridges was the last person to see Aaron. Yeah. That's it. Well, and there's no, he has no true alibi. No, he was at home. It was the two of them. Yeah. So. So he, police look into him more. And they start asking Aaron's friends about him, like about their relationship, what all it looked like. 
Aaron's friends described him as very confident. He thought he was God's gift to women. Oh, my um, God. So she was dating a dirtbag. Yeah. And he was also very controlling and could be abusive to Aaron. Oh, my God. Um, Michael, come on. Yeah. He would tell her who she could talk to, who she could see, things like that. Come the fuck on. Yeah. This makes me so mad. Oh, no. He's trash. Look into him. Look into him. Arrest this mm-hmm. guy. So, one time, one of her friends was um, telling investigators that uh, he'd even kicked Aaron out of his house after they had a fight. In the middle of the night, in the middle of winter... She was wearing next to no clothes. I think she was, like, in her pajamas or a nightgown or something. Oh, my God. And she had to walk to a payphone to, like, have someone to call for help for someone to come pick her up. Because also, she's in Canada yeah. in the winter. It's probably, like, zero degrees, I'm sure. That's so fucked up. Yeah. So, the month prior to Aaron's disappearance, she had actually gotten into a fight with Michael after uh, the two of them and one of Aaron's friends had all gone out drinking. They came back to Michael's place to hang out, and that's when Aaron and Michael got into a fight. He became physical. He choked her and threw her across the room, and the fight was finally broken up when Michael's mom came into the room and separated everyone and drove the girls home. Oh my god. Yeah. So Aaron had never told her family about this. Yeah. Which is sad, but I can totally understand not wanting to. But so now the investigation is like, okay, what is Michael's connection to her disappearance? Yeah. Um, Because after this fight and everything, according to friends... A few weeks before the disappearance, Aaron wanted to break up with Michael and didn't want anything to have anything to do with him anymore. She was done with him. She was done. She's like, fuck you, dude. So they're like, okay, what happened? Why was he able to come back? You know, what? why'd she go? If, if she's done with him, why was she with him that night? And what exactly. happened? Exactly. If she was done, what was she doing in his house? So as the investigation's kind of going on... One of Michael's friends is like, hey, uh, didn't realize this was all that important, but I think it actually very much is. So Michael's friend tells the investigators that on the day of Aaron's disappearance, he was with Michael and they were hanging out. Michael asked him a couple times if he could call, if his friend would call Aaron. So Aaron wouldn't know the number. And Michael and Aaron talked on the phone. They fought. Then they also talked a little bit. And then after the call, Michael tells his friend that, you know, okay, we're going to get in the car and we're going to go pick up Aaron from her mom's house. And this is that day. So the friend is, is just like, day. hey, he borrowed my phone to talk to her. They fought a lot. And then we go, we went to pick her up. Yeah. I, you know, to be honest, I, I, he's like, I don't think it was that important. Yeah. You literally supposedly like, yes, it's important. Yeah. Yes, it's important. Although I get being in high school and thinking maybe this wouldn't be important because it's such a, like, it's high school, high school drama. This is very typical. Yeah. Boyfriend, girlfriend, fighting. Well, it's just, I get it. And it's only in retrospect that you look back and be like, oh, shit. That was important. Well, I think that's what happened here is he was like, "Uh, hold on. Well, because I might know something. Also, before then, was not even thinking Michael was even any kind of suspect. Yeah. Because, you know, before this, when they were talking to Michael, it was mostly, like, to see if he'd seen anything, to see if she had said anything. Like, so, yeah. So, they drive over to Aaron's mom's house. Aaron gets in the car, and then Michael drives to his friend's house and basically, like, kicks his friend out of the car and is like, oh, we're gonna go hang out us too. 
And his friend's like, okay, bye. Yeah. <laughs> and goes home. Like, again, dick move, but so, that, to me, that wouldn't be a red flag. No, it's not a red flag. And also, at this point, Michael has already admitted that he was with Aaron that night. So mm-hmm. this is not, this is just the precursor to that story. Yeah. And he called her. We knew that yeah. already. And so, yeah. So investigators are now looking into the case with all the information they have. They're looking into it as if foul play is involved. Yes. And so they put Michael under surveillance. They tap his phone. They have, like, patrols in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. He's under surveillance and he doesn't know it. Of course. Um, Most people don't. So in June of 2002, Michael's car, um, the one that the friend and Aaron and everyone had been in, was stolen. Oh! But it wasn't stolen by criminals. It was stolen by the police in the cover of night. Wait, so, they stole his car? Yeah. So they had received authority to run forensic tests on it. Oh, so they but, like, got a warrant, but they had to get it there. So they stole it. Yeah, and they needed to keep Michael in the dark that they're investigating him like this in case there's any evidence or anything that he would destroy. So is this under, like, Canadian law? Like, was this okay for them to do? Yeah, this was my. I know. I was like, oh, I don't think we could do that here. Well, I know. There's a point in my case that I was like, I don't think we can do that here, but maybe they could there. Yeah. So, and, I mean, I don't live in Canada. I don't know. Their, I, their I don't know. system. So. But yeah, so they did it. I and... am, I, I am, like. <laughs> in my head like rooting on these cops i'm like yes it's still that fucking card get that evidence well unfortunately they ran forensic tests on everything they damn it they went found all nothing. over the entire car and they found nothing they damn found it. nothing that would show foul play hmm. so then they're like all right next steps we need to look at the house yeah so they came to the house with a warrant to find evidence of a homicide at Michael's house. Michael answers the door and he's like, kind of acting like he expected this. Like he expected them to be here. So he's being this like big guy, big tough man. Like, oh, I knew you'd be coming. Mm -hmm. Come on in. See what you can fucking find. Basically. Fuck, I can just, I'm picturing this all in my head. I hate, So this was also the first time that it became public that the police were looking into this case as a homicide and that Michael was the primary suspect. Up until now, everyone is under the impression that this is still just a missing persons case. Yeah. And that no one thinks Michael has anything to do with it until this. So they tear apart the house looking for bloodstains, anything. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. However, they did find detailed notes that Michael had written that detailed the story that he would told police about the last night he was with Aaron. As if it was something he studied to make sure he got that story down? Well, he either studied it, or after he spoke with investigators, he wrote down everything he could remember. So oh, he shit. To make so sure he didn't to forget keep the story it. straight. Yeah. They don't know which one. It was, but yeah, one or the other. One or the other. Either is pretty damning. Yeah. So they have these, and they're like, holy shit. But until they find hard evidence, they can't do anything. No, that's not... Because there's also the flip side of... Maybe he was like, oh, he's, shit, my girlfriend's missing. Uh, I should probably write down, write down anything down he can remember. Yeah. Anything I can remember. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's it's something that looks very suspicious, yet also Could very not much super mean suspicious. Yeah. If you're just uh, wanting to make sure you account the things right. Although, yeah. I mean, he seems like a total dick, so yeah, suspicion. So now it's about a year after her disappearance. It's now April of 2003. 
and they're not that much closer to solving it and finding her. Around this time, a letter is sent to the Chorney family, and in the letter, the author is claiming they have knowledge of where Aaron is. What? Um, the author talks about how beautiful she was, how they had tried to go and dig her up, but since the ground was frozen, they couldn't. They couldn't dig her up, and just what? saying how sorry they were for what he had done. So whoever wrote this letter, it sounds like it's not the killer it's or not the, the killer it's someone who knows it's someone some who information knows. yeah oh no and family is like what the actual hell because again the the family's still looking at this as, then, as, she's as a missing, missing and alive and yeah. now they're like holy uh, fucking shit yeah. does this mean she's dead well the letter is sent to the police they fingerprint it they look for any dna on the lick strip but they found nothing and that what that means is that the person who sent it knew exactly what they were doing. Yes. They made sure no fingerprints on this. That they wet the lick strip with a sponge or something and not their tongue. Like, they, yep. they, they knew, knew what not they were doing. to get caught. Yep. Around this time, another letter. And this one seems to be written by the same person, but it's also written in a way, it's written in first person in the way of, like, the person who did it. So it's... Oh. It's like the author seems to be the same person, but now they're writing about as if it was them. Um, And this letter is actually found in a public restroom. What? So it wasn't mailed or anything. It was found in the restroom? Yeah. So the second letter, it both talks about how guilty the author feels, but they also taunt the police, telling them that they'd been so close to finding her body. And if they did, they would find out who the killer was. What? Yeah. But, the again, they couldn't find anything on that letter. So the the mystery is just, like, growing. Like, what the fuck like is going on? who is writing these letters? So the police, to try to get in contact with the author, decide to post in the newspaper classifieds, just trying to get the writer of the letter to respond to them. Yeah. Um, and, again, this is not public knowledge. So they're keeping it vague, like, we know you feel guilty, we know um, you want to talk about what you've done, mail your letters here, or something like that. Yeah. So it worked. They got a final letter. Oh my um, god. And this one goes into detail about how Aaron is still buried, and the writer went to the spot where she is and confirmed she's still there, but that's it. Oh my god. police are like, okay, fuck this shit. No, we were going to fucking pull out all the guns. Yeah. So the police, together with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP or the Mounties. Yeah. Um, who's basically the Canadian FBI. Um, they decide to start a sting operation to expose Michael and his secrets because they know there is a lot more that he knows or yes. he's involved with. He's not telling them. So they're, they're going to do a sting operation. This is where the story gets fucking crazy. Okay. So, on September 23rd of 2003, an undercover cop goes to Michael's house and she's pretending to conduct a survey um, for a local radio station. And she also invites him to sign up for a contest with the grand prize this contest being tickets to an NHL hockey game in Calgary. Yeah. And Michael's like, Hell sure, yeah. I love hockey. Um, about a month later... He gets a call and he's notified that he's uh, he's the winner. 
He won the contest. Of course he did. And so he got an all-expensive paid trip to Calgary. And he is, like, loving this shit. This is, like, winning the lottery for him. Yeah. He is living life. It's his favorite hockey team. All-expenses paid. He's like, fuck yes. So he takes full advantage of it. So while he's there in Calgary, he meets another guy um, when he's in Calgary who won the contest, Brock. And the two, like, go out to strip clubs together. They party. And uh-huh. over the next few months, they start to become pretty good friends. I'm thinking Brock's an undercover cop. I'm thinking Brock is. <laughs> Considering so, you said this was a sting operation and they're hanging out, strip clubs. Yeah. These things that you you would think men would get to in, like, discussions and mm-hmm. they're trying to find some info. I see it. Yeah. Michael did not. Nope. So, in December of 2003, Michael and his new friend Brock are driving around and they meet up with um, a stranger to Michael, but someone Brock knows, oh. who hands Brock an envelope just full of cash. Puts in his jacket. He's like, oh, okay. And he starts, you know, telling Michael a little bit. He's like, oh, I'm, you know, involved in some things. You know, just some crime stuff. Like, nothing huge, low level, whatever. And just over the course of the next couple weeks and months... He starts kind of, Michael is interested and is like, okay, well, how do I get involved in stuff? And it just seems that Brock... Where are you getting the money? Yeah, basically. And it basically just seems that Brock is grooming Michael and kind of taking him under his wing to be his part of this thing. Yeah. So one day they're hanging out and Brock gets a call from the boss. I did did finger quotes. Finger quotes. The boss. The boss. And Brock recommends to the boss that he recommends Michael for a job. Yeah. In what seems to be this like underground crime syndicate. So Michael starts making deliveries and doing just like little tasks for this organization and kind of starts to move up in it. Yeah. Starts to get to know the other people in it and start moving up in it and oh get just get very comfortable with this all of the other criminals so in this. Oh, oh, it's my God. insane. Um, <laughs> wow. So Michael's loving this. It's easy money. It's like the good life. It's recognition. He feels like he is a superstar Could you in this crime world. Could you imagine being the person that has to come up with the sting plan? Like, did they ask, like, John Grisham to, like, devise this or something? Could you imagine being that person that's coming up with, like, this sting plan? Yeah. And just, they, you know, you just imagine there was the cops, they're like, okay, we got to come up with a plan with how to expose him. How are we going to do that? I know, and just how detailed and how many moving parts there are. It's insane. Yeah. It is absolutely insane. I I love it. Okay. So, yeah, Michael's loving this. It, this is basically, this is all the things he's always wanted. Yeah. Um, and Brock tells him that the boss wants him to be a permanent part of the ring, of the crime ring. Of course But does. to officially join, he's going to need to talk to the boss and tell him about any and all of his past crimes. Got it. So he, he has to, basically, he, just, he has to prove his loyalty to the organization. And in this organization, that means them. honest. Yeah, yeah, that means honesty. Yep. So then to kind of drive the point home, Brock and Michael go on a job right after this um, to find someone who had stolen money from the ring. Yeah. And basically, a a girlfriend of someone in the gang had apparently stolen money and run off with it. 
So Brock and Michael track her down and find her at a motel. Michael is waiting in the car. Brock gets out, confronts her, and then he goes in and just starts like brutally assaulting her. Except Brock and the woman are both undercover police officers. Yeah. So Michael's sitting in the car, seeing and hearing this like Brock like basically almost murder this woman over the money. And they're like sitting in there like blood capsules, like putting on fight makeup, playing sounds like Hollywood. All the way. Oh my god. Um, I thought you were going to tell me they were doing like the fake fighting, like the WWE, where they're not really hitting each other. I mean, I'm sure through the, they do a little bit of that through like maybe the open door that he can see. Yeah, where you can see. For the most part, no. They have like sound effects playing, blood capsules. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, So Michael thinks all of it's real. Brock comes out of it after with, like, bloody knuckles, like, you know, a couple defensive wounds to his face and stuff. Yeah. Because he just, like, attacked this woman. Yeah. Is what Michael thinks. Yeah. And all of that was set up to get Michael comfortable talking about violence against women. This is a movie. I know. Like, I know we've said that about some cases, but I think this is the one that I'm like, I feel like I'm... Like, fucking watching Die Hard right now. Yeah. (laughs) So, Brock, you know, tells Michael that the boss wants to know everything, like, crime-wise that Michael has done, so that he could just make sure that it's not going to come back on the organization. Yeah. The boss didn't care what he's done. Obviously, they do crime and murder, probably, and all that all the time. Yeah. The boss just needs to know what it is, so know what all the moving parts are, so he can protect them from it and make sure that it doesn't come back on the organization. So now it's nearly two years after Aaron's disappearance, and Michael is preparing with Brock for his meeting with the boss. Yeah. Um, They're, like, sitting down at a cafe, and Brock's, like, kind of telling him, like, what the boss is like, and, like, just, you know, to steady himself. Because it's basically like a mob boss that he's getting ready to meet. Of course. Yeah. So... Michael, at this point, had spoken very little about Aaron to anyone in the organization. He'd never even used her name. Um, But he tells Brock how the two of them had gotten into a fight, and he'd pushed her, and she fell, but all of it was just a tragic accident. Sure. Investigators, which everything that they've been doing, everything's bugged. The investigators are hearing everything. Of course. I mean, Brock obviously is an undercover cop. He's wearing a wire and stuff. So investigators are not buying this. And they know that there's more he knows. I'm also imagining being the person that's listening to all of this. And those those moments when you're like, oh my God, Michael's saying something. Michael's, guys, guys. Like, I'm just saying. Like I said, literally a movie in my head right now. Yeah. So Brock, you know, they come back the next day, um, sit down, and Brock goes back to Michael and is... Um, asks him to reveal where her body is. So they're talking, and it's the next day. Michael's a lot more comfortable uh, after kind of revealing everything the day before. Right. And he starts to reveal more. He says that he didn't actually push her, but he wound up choking her until she died after the fight. That's very different than a push. Um, Yeah, a little bit. And he wrapped her up in plastic like sheets and a blanket and then buried her body in a nearby cemetery. No, shut up. So this is something that I knew I had an idea of the kind of case I wanted to with this topic. I'm just going to take a little sidestep out real quick because 
I've seen so many times people talk about why don't killers just bury bodies in cemeteries? A cemetery. Because, you know, there's new fresh plots of dirt all the time. There's obviously other dead people there. So even if a cadaver dog's there, what? They're they're going to stem and find a dead person? Okay. I know. Like, so I was like, I'm going to find a case like that. I found this and was just pulled in by everything. Uh, I can so, yeah. see why. So Michael actually takes Brock to the grave. Oh my god. And where she's buried and tells him how he took her body there shortly after midnight on the night he killed her. And he noticed there was a freshly dug grave. And he was like, okay. So he and went just back. dug in the same spot. He dug about two feet deep and he buried Aaron's body right there. I'm thinking that's not deep enough, but okay. Yep, yeah, same. But remember, the guy who's hearing all of this, Brock, is a police officer. Oh, I know. But he can't react to no. any of this. No. So at least not in a way that would make him seem suspicious at all. Yeah, he, he has, has to, to be like cool like, with it. Yeah, like this is every day for him. This is nothing. Yeah. So like everyone else can hear. Mm-hmm. So investigators obtain a warrant, and in the cover of the night, they go to investigate the grave with probes because they can't dig her up. Because why? If she's dug up then michael's gonna know oh shit there's like a mole or something like but wait he will shut up because he hasn't given enough so okay say even though he says this is where i choked her and this is where i buried her why is that not enough because they still haven't looked at for all they know they find her body and has a gunshot wound they know that there is more michael knows and they also know that just an audio confession is not enough why? Because, well, and also they don't know if Michael's telling the truth. If they dig and there's no body there, well, fuck. But how would Michael know? They're not going to get, well, exactly. It, but it, say Michael's lying. He's trying to be cool. Like, oh, yeah, I totally killed my girlfriend. And buried right she's there. buried right there. Well, all of a sudden the next day police dig there. There's no body. Michael's bouncing with whatever information he still knows. Yeah. So that... So they go, and they um, they go with probes to find something, and they're pushing the probes in. They have to, but basically they have to make it look like there's there was no one there. Of course. So they're probing. They do about five holes, and they find nothing. And then on the sixth hole, they found traces of plastic and blanket material, <gasps> and they're like, "She's there. She's there." But again, they need more to be able to try him. So they. No, she's there, but they can't dig her up yet. Stop. I'm assuming mm-hmm. the family does not know family any of this. Family has no idea. Good, because they would... Yeah. Dad would go dig her up himself. Yeah. Mom probably would, too. So yeah. an eight-year-old sis. Like, 100%. Literally. Yeah. So now it's February 12th of 2004. Almost two years since she's been missing. And Michael goes to Winnipeg uh, to a hotel room to finally meet with the boss. This hotel room... Obviously, is filled with hidden cameras. Obviously. So, again, police had an audio confession, but they needed to have a full video confession to make this airtight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, just a few minutes before the boss is... perfect, because he has to retell everything to the boss. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. Just a few minutes before the boss walks in, uh, Brock is... So Michael, and he's like, okay, dude, we need to just make sure, like, let's do a dress rehearsal. You have to be, like, buttoned the fuck up. Yeah. Um, Let's just go over everything that you're going to say to the boss. 
And so Michael's like, oh, cool, perfect dude. And this is going to, this is being recorded. Mm-hmm. On video, audio, all of it. Yeah. Because um, they're they're sitting in the hotel room. Yeah. The boss is going to walk in any minute. And they're just like preparing. Yeah. So Michael tells Brock that the night that he brought Aaron home, uh, they'd argued. He described in graphic detail grabbing her by the neck and choking her until she was unconscious, but still breathing. Then he took a second and he decided that he needed to finish what he started and he drowned her in the bathtub. Oh my she was God. And Michael's saying this in a very, like, nonchalant, like, kind of just bragging story. It's like, okay, so this is what I did. Yeah, that's what. And this officer, I'm sure inside is horrified. Also, Michael is so fucking stupid. Yeah. Because he is doing this so he can be a part of some crime circle to make money. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, literally, he is so stupid. Oh, The biggest secret you could ever have, and you're telling it to this dude that you've known for a few months so you can make some extra cash to be cool. Like, at this point, what, a year? Yeah. 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 Wow. So, Brock asks Michael why he'd lied earlier when they first talked about it um and he'd said that her death was an accident and the reason that brock is asking this is the investigators have to make sure their case is airtight yeah and that it can't be said that michael was coerced into a confession and make sure he wasn't exaggerating what he'd done so they're like okay well why'd you lie and michael said that he was just nervous at the time to give away too many details about what he'd done yeah. And that was that was exactly what they needed. So at that moment, the door opens. And instead of the boss walking in, two Brandon police officers are there to arrest Michael. Now they have a full video confession. Stop. And Michael just like shit his pants because he's like... <laughs> he's like, wait, what the fuck is going on? Oh, yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. Oh so, my god. Now that he's arrested and they have all the evidence they need, they can finally actually recover Aaron's body from the gravesite and bring her home to be with her family. God. So again, Aaron's How hard would that be mm-hmm. to be an officer and to know exactly where the victim is? Oh yeah. And you can't do anything about it. Well to know where to the wait. victim is, to know To know for the most part murdered, who did it. To know who did it, but to also know that the family, Aaron's family knows nothing at this point. Yeah. They're sitting out there. They're probably calling the police department once a week or more oh, saying, checking okay, in, see you, if they have you any know, info. are there any more leads? Has she been spotted anywhere? And they literally know where she is, where her body is. Oh my God. And can't tell her. So finally, after Michael's arrested, um, police bring in Aaron's family and sit them down and tell them that, you know, they've arrested Michael um, and that he murdered Aaron. And, and how it, long did this scene go on? Like a year? Yeah. It was... Wow. He was arrested about two years after Aaron disappeared, but the sting was going on for about one year. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So in June of 2005, Michael Bridges went to trial for the murder of Aaron Chorney. And on June 29th of 2005, Michael was found guilty of first-degree murder and yep. sentenced to life without parole because... Basically, they watched the video confession. Like, and that's, they didn't need a lot more. They had the circumstantial evidence and they had his full video confession. Yeah. And everything. So, yeah. So, in October of 2006, Michael appealed the sentence based on the fact that 
Aaron's death had been a result of a fight that escalated, and it wasn't premeditated. Because he was charged with first-degree murder, which has to be premeditated right, with a plan and in planned. place. And he's like, no, we fought. And yeah, I choked her and she died and stuff, but that wasn't premeditated. Yeah. Like, it, it shouldn't have... It was in the moment. Yeah. Which does carry, in most cases, a lesser uh, sentence. Right. So, while the prosecutor agreed that the fight and her death was a result of this argument and that he didn't, that Michael hadn't set out to kill Aaron, it's still first-degree murder because he made a calculated decision to kill her once he realized that she was unconscious and that there would be consequences for him if she woke up and reported him. So he's like, oh, yep. originally, no, it wasn't first-degree murder, but when you stopped choking her and she was unconscious... And made the plan and decision to drown her, that was first degree murder. Because you had to think of that plan. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a, oh shit, we had a huge fight and she's dead. Yeah. It was, oh shit, we had a huge fight. I choked her. She's okay. She's going to be really mad. I should probably just finish the job. Yeah. Wow. So it took less than an hour for them to decide to uphold the conviction. Yeah. But one final thing about this case, it is still not known who wrote those letters. Or oh. where they came from. I know, yeah, the letters in the very beginning. No one knows who they're from. If Is there a from, reason they think it's not Michael? Um, it, I, I, there were, I think there was evidence that it couldn't have been him. Either handwriting or something. That oh it was my someone God. else. Who, so, so there's was someone it knows something. Michael's friend who, you know, did Michael have a friend that he told about this? I don't know. It, they have no idea. It is a complete mystery. Where the letters came from. That's crazy. And that was so fucked up. Yeah. So that is the case of Erin Chorney, who um, her, I guess, hidden body was two feet down in a grave. fresh grave of someone else. Which is horrifying. Yeah. I just can't get over how this is so cinematic. Yeah. Because you had a case a couple weeks ago that was also that we declared cinematic, but this one tops it. Oh, I know. Like, everything oh my with, God. Everything's a twist and a turn, and it's all like this long-ass con. Like, insane. Yeah. I am so impressed with this police department and the RCMP for coming together with this sting and this oh, plan. Yeah. No, it is, this is so crazy. intense. So impressive. And, yeah. So impressive. And it's so thought out at every step of the way. Like, oh, they know they need to not only get him comfortable with, like, crime being the syndicate... They need to specifically get him comfortable with talking about violence against women. So they're going to expose him to this scenario of this woman getting beat for stealing money. Like that. Again, the thought yeah. that went into this, the detail that was put into this plan to get him to confess. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Well, before we jump into my case, we absolutely have to jump into bottle number two. Yes. After that. I don't like your opener very much. Well. I mean, like, I really like it because it's very easy to use. But I know. it just doesn't have that, like, excitement of, like, I just opened a bottle. Like, yay. I know. I really need to just invest in another, like, good elbow one. Like the. Oh. <laughs> ones yeah <laughs> yeah because i hate i don't like the electric ones that you just like put it either. on and you're just like Hurr! one because uh, that would be the worst sound ever on a podcast yes it would and two because i don't know i don't like them don't like them i don't i don't like the idea of 
if I forget to charge that, I can't get to my that, wine like, you quickly. literally can't open the wine. I mean, not that I would ever get rid of the wine keys that I already have. Because I have, like, two waiter wine keys. You because always you have should, a backup. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then two opener. Maybe I have, I have four wine openers, actually. It's fine. It's fine. But I want to hear about your Hidden Bodies case. Yes. Mine is the case of Bruce MacArthur, who, for those of y'all who know, is uh, in the news right now. So this is an extremely timely oh. case. Oh! <laughs> oh! Yes! Okay. Because I'm like, I don't... Am I, know, I supposed I'm to like, know who the hell the that is? The light bulb is, is going to go off any yep. moment, and it just yes. did. Yes, it did. Okay. So the sources I used... Vanity Fair, New York Times, ABC7 Chicago, and the Washington Post. And another um, interesting thing, this is, mine's also a Canadian murder. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting you didn't find any Canadian sources. Um, This is so big right now that it's everywhere. Because Fair. this doesn't happen in Canada. Crimes in Canada are, which I'll get into this a little bit later, there's not many. So a serial killer in Canada is a big fucking deal. Yeah. Um, I mean, a serial killer anywhere is a big fucking it deal. It is. It is. But somewhere that this doesn't happen, it's a lot. Unfortunately, yeah. in the United States, we have this all the time. Well, and one thing you also have to think of is, well, Canada geographically is huge. It's Doesn't the second people. biggest country in the world. Yeah. Size-wise. Size -wise. But population-wise, Canada only has some 30-something million. Yeah, which there's is, not as many people. You know, I mean, that's quite a few people, but it's like a little bit bigger than Texas, the state, like people-wise. Yeah. And so, I mean, just numbers-wise, yeah, it's going to happen a lot less often, but also culturally very different, and you don't have this serial killer nope. phenomenon like you do in the States. Nope. Um. So in January 2018... So a little over a year ago, mm -hmm. more than a dozen fiberglass garden planters arrived at the Ontario Forensics Pathology Service, which was a facility in northern Toronto. Okay. It had been a very, very cold winter, um, even by Canadian standards, so it's fucking cold. And these 400-pound faux rock containers were completely frozen. They'd been outside completely frozen. Okay. After letting them thaw for a few days, Dr. Kathy Grespierre began conducting x-rays. She saw that one of them contained some type of foreign object, and she called Detective Sergeant Hank Insinga. Um, he was a homicide cop there in the Toronto Police Service. His team had helped locate these planners at a private residence on a quiet street and shipped them to Grespierre to, you know, they had like this feeling that something was off about them. Yeah. He and his team drove to the lab, and then by then, the containers had been thawing for about 10 days, and they were starting to emit this really foul odor. Oh. Grispierre sawed the planter she had x-rayed in half to see what was inside. Yeah. She peeled away the sides to reveal a human head, <sighs> torsos, and limbs. Mm. Torsos? Torsos. Through some... Because remember, there are more than a dozen of these. Yeah. So through dental and fingerprint analyses, the team eventually separated seven sets of remains. Oh. So. Shit. Okay. Like we were saying, homicides in Canada are so rare mm -hmm. that Kathy Grispierre, she's a 56-year-old single mom, is the country's only full-time forensic anthropologist. Just her. Whoa. For the entire country. 
Okay. All right, Bones. So, I know, seriously, I had a lot... This intro portion, I was thinking Bones in my head the whole time. Uh, 100%. So, you cannot even begin to overstate how shocking this was for the country to discover these remains. Just an example of how rare homicide is. In 2016, there were 611 homicides in the entire country. The state of Ohio had 627. Wow. So, Ohio, more than Canada in 2016. But with the news of the discovery of all these bodies, newspapers everywhere... One, I'm sorry, 1% of all homicides in the country that year were linked to him, to this guy. Think about that. That is why this was so fucking big. That's insane. That's a percent. That is a percent. Like a full on 1%. Yeah. Damn. I know. Um, So, you know, newspapers everywhere are writing stories. I mean, these murders were worthy of a Stephen King novel. Like, this is so fucked up. Body parts found in planters. Both of ours are, like, cinematic, it seems. Yeah, this one gets crazier. Okay. This one could also absolutely be a movie. So, by early June in 2018, the case had grown to include eight victims. Six of them were of Middle Eastern or South Asian descent. Mm-hmm. I am so sorry if I do not say these names well. Skandaraj Navaratnam, Maid Kehan, Abdul Basir Faizi, Sarush Mahmoodi, Salim Asen, and Karushna Kumar Kanagartnam. Navaratnam was a 40-year-old Sri Lankan Tamil refugee. Kehan was a 58-year-old Afghani man who had been married and had a son. Mm-hmm. Fazi was 42. He'd been born in Afghanistan and immigrated from Iran and was married and had a family. Mm-hmm. Mahmoodi was 50 and he was from Iran and lived with his Sri Lankan wife and stepson. Mm-hmm. Isin was 44 and he was a Turkish citizen. And the other two men were Dean Lisowick, who was 47, and Andrew Kinsman, who was 49. Nearly all of these men had disappeared from the church and Willisley neighborhood, also known as Toronto's Gay Village, mm-hmm. between 2010 and 2017. Oh. Several of the victims' families said they didn't know their loved ones visited the village at all. Meaning... Oh, because a lot of these men were They married were married, children, still oh. with their families... And um, so it seemed as if they had a lot of secrets. Yeah. So taking a step back into time, in November 2012, this was a month after Kehan's disappearance, and the fear in the village is mounting. You know, uh, there were multiple disappearances, and the police convened a task force to find out what was happening. They called it Project Houston, which I don't know if it's actually Houston or Houston. Couldn't tell you which one it is. It's one of those. Within a few months, they'd uncovered clues that suggested that Navaratnam had met with foul play. Okay. The leads, which initially pointed to an online cannibalism ring, were dismissed as fantastical and eventually ruled out. Yeah. So there's apparently some crazy shit going on. (laughs) Yep. But they brought Itzinga who was their 30-year-old police veteran uh, detective, onto the case. Mm-hmm. Investigators began by interviewing Navaratnam's friends. And according to multiple reports, this included a 60-year-old man who was a landscape designer named Bruce MacArthur. Okay. Bruce was born in rural Ontario in 1951. He graduated 
uh, married his high school sweetheart and became a salesman. Mm-hmm. The couple had a son and a daughter who are both now grown. He was a grandfather. He loved tropical birds. He hated Donald Trump. You know, just seeming like your just average Joe. man. Average grandpa. Old grandpa who likes birds. Yeah. Yeah. Around 1998, when he was in his late 40s, MacArthur came out and he moved to the village. So he came out as a much older adult and after already having like kids and grandkids at that point, he was about 5'10", 221 pounds. He was unassuming in both appearance and demeanor. He was the type he would bake muffins, sipped wine, lavished friends with roses on their birthdays. He was literally known in the community as one of the kindest men anyone knew. Oh my God, is that what I'm going to grow into? I just drink wine and bake muffins for people. I absolutely fucking hope not, considering what I just started this story with. I mean, yeah, I'm not going to murder people, but I also don't want to be old and bake muffins for people. Although there are worse lives for that. You don't even bake muffins for me? I stress bake. When is the last time you've baked anything? When was the last time we went grocery shopping? When is the last time you've baked anything? I'm just saying. What have you baked for me in the year that you've been here? I don't bake for you. Just ask my uh, college roommates about me stress baking because it was pumpkin spice flavored hell for a couple months there. (laughs) All right. Fair. Fair. Um, So MacArthur owned a man in a van landscaping business called Artistic Design. Okay. I thought the company name was a man in a van. And I'm like, uh, what? No. The company's name was Artistic Design. Okay, that's better. I wouldn't <laughs> hire a man in a van to, uh, like, co- although that sounds like some kind of, like, very local, maybe Florida company. So, it's like, get a, hire a man in a van. And that also sounds murdery, so. It, it very much does. So, he was a very popular with the people in Toronto. He had a lot of older clients. They appreciated his love of things like succulents and all the exotic varieties that he had. Yeah. So he was great at his I job. I visit Toronto so bad. Toronto's like... Oh, I do too. ...in my top five cities to move to. It's like number Shouldn't you like visit four. it before you decide you want to move there? Um, I mean, probably, but I didn't really do that with Austin. I guess I did. Fair. I didn't. Yeah. So I hmm. said that and I was being to- total hypocrite. I know. I didn't do that with Oslo. Still did that. I mean, fair. But okay. So police learned that MacArthur had actually employed Navaratnam as a landscaper. Oh. The two of them had dated on and off for years. Oh. MacArthur was interviewed, but nothing suspicious came out and he was let go. So having failed to find any criminal evidence, Project Houston slash Houston closed down after only 18 months since it had begun. Wow. Mott Moody, Lisa Wick, Isin, and Kinsman, and also Kinegartnam had vanished over the next four years. Gosh. After this investigation had shut down. So they launched the investigation after, what, two disappearances? Yes. Interesting. By the summer of 2017, so jumping multiple years into the future, the community was very aware that a serial killer was amongst them. Mm -hmm. The alleged victims fit a pattern. Most of them were Middle Eastern or South Asian descent. They lived on the margins of Canadian society, and 
their disappearances attracted little attention for the most part in Toronto. Which is so fucked up. Uh, yes, it is. But it's, they're gay. They're not white. They're people of color, so. And they're also living double lives. Yeah. You know, as I mentioned earlier, they're hiding this information from their families. And so they, their families don't know that they're in these areas. So they don't. Yeah. They just, they just don't know. But it's just, God. These types of disappearances fit the typical serial killer profile, where the killer seeks out those on the edge of society, so their disappearance is not going to be noticed. Sasha Reed, who was a 29-year-old University of Toronto psychology researcher and PhD candidate, she studied the inner worlds of serial killers, and she put together a profile of the hypothetical killer. Going on mostly her instinct, just as much as experience of her research... She guessed that the killer would be male, because almost all of them are. Mm-hmm. He'd have a blue-collar job, because almost all of them do. And he'd be sexually motivated, because the missing men appeared to be of a certain type, suggesting that there was a preference or some erotic fixation. God, which, it's crazy because a profile of a serial killer in the U.S. would never have to be built by a doctoral candidate and researcher from a university. She wasn't asked to do this. She just did it. Well, I know, but, like, they probably... Oh, it would already be done. The Royal Mounted... The Royal Canadian Mounted Police would... I doubt they had the resources or the experience. I mean, I'm sure they had resources. But the experience in building a serial killer profile, because it doesn't really happen in Canada. No. I mean, the FBI can do it like that because right. we have serial killers every 10 minutes, basically, in the States. So, yeah, unfortunately. Gosh. Well, so she phoned the Toronto police, relayed her profile to an officer, and the police denied that a serial killer was the cause of these disappearances. They were like, nope, that's not what's going on. And she's like, okay, but here's the profile of and, them. And they're like, cool, thanks. That's not what's happening. Did they actually not believe that was what happening? Or were they, like, being secretive about the investigation? No. They truly did not believe that was what was going on. They denied it for a long time. Whoa. Which is a big controversy of this case. Yeah. But then, a man named Andrew Kinsman vanished. He was a 49-year-old LGBTQ activist and former bartender in Toronto. And he had many friends. And obviously, he was a white guy. Yeah. Well, yeah. When he suddenly went missing the day after Toronto's Gay Pride Parade on June 25th, 2017, his friends noticed very quickly, and therefore so did the police. See, and obviously his disappearance and murder, I'm assuming it's what we're getting to, is very important as well. But the fact that it takes a white person disappearing and, oh shit, find the white guy. Whereas, you know, we have how many people of color seven so far who've gone missing and foul six. play is six we have six people of color so far that have gone missing foul play is suspected and it's like yeah not in all of them and not all of them are even known to be missing yeah but it's just uh, th- that it took a white oh, person I being i mean god i i'm sure if it was if there was a if he was a white straight man dear god i mean they would have phoned in the u.s mexico any all the nato countries to come find it no, it's really sad that it, it did take this type of person missing for what seems to be, like, the investigation to really to really take off and progress. Yeah. 
So, Kinsman was the final victim, and he was last seen on a surveillance video getting into MacArthur's van on June 26th, so the day after the parade, the last day he was seen. Yeah. And he had actually known MacArthur for about 15 years. Oh, wow. On his calendar, on the date of his disappearance, he had written Bruce, signifying some type of appointment. Yeah. Just said Bruce on his calendar. The video did not capture the minivan's license plate, but once the police identified the car as a 2004 model, a search of Ontario's license plate record showed that there were only five red vans registered to men named Bruce. MacArthur was the only one that had ever been in contact with the force, so they had his information. Okay. Shortly after Kinsman went missing, so we're still in the summer of 2017, Itzinga and a small group of detectives quietly launched a new investigation, and they called this one Project Prism, and they started to look closely at MacArthur. Who the hell names these projects? I don't know. I mean, I ask the same question at work every day, because, (laughs) dear God, there's like, Project Paper Towel, Project Cat Sitting in a Cat Tree, Project Brittany Sitting Across from Me Doing a Podcast. They're very specific. It's strange. I feel like people are watching me. Those are like really long titles. Well, you know. So they did not have to dig too deep to find signs that suggested a history of violence in MacArthur. On October 31st, 2001, police arrived at the apartment of a male escort who had called 911 after awakening from a blackout. The victim had invited MacArthur into his apartment around noon that day and was considering showing MacArthur his Halloween costume because it's Halloween. Yeah. When unprovoked, MacArthur hit him in the head with a metal pipe that he'd brought with him. That's a weird thing to bring with you. MacArthur said that they were engaging in consensual sex, but in January 2003, MacArthur pleaded guilty to assault, causing bodily harm, and he received a conditional sentence barring him from the village and further contact with escorts. Oh. So he just wasn't allowed in the village anymore, couldn't have any more escorts. He assaults this guy and hits him with a metal pipe. Yeah. He's unconscious, and it's just like, well, you know, don't come back next time. Really? Basically. Fuck that nonsense. So the second instance was in 2016. MacArthur was investigated for a potential sexual assault, though police set him free. They never charged him. God. So Insinga's team learned that MacArthur was once a regular at the Black Eagle, which was the bar where Andrew Kinsman worked. Mm-hmm. MacArthur both dated Kinsman and employed him at Artistic Design, as he had with Navaratnam. He was also very active, he being MacArthur, was very active on gay apps and websites, including Grindr, Scruff, Ming Jam, and Silver Daddies. Okay. He would meet guys. What, you tell me he's not also on, like, Adam for Adam, Craigslist? I mean, it's Canada. I don't know what ones they have. I don't know. I have never heard of the third one you said. Silver Daddies? Oh, wait, no. no. (laughs) Scruff. No, the one you said in between those two. (laughs) Oh, Man Jam. Yeah, I've never heard of Man Jam, but ew. Anyway, uh, so he was meeting guys, hooking up with them, employing them, and then, as it seemed to the cops, disappearing them. Interesting. In September 2017, a month into Project Prism, MacArthur got rid of his work vehicle. And it was a maroon Dodge Caravan, so a maroon minivan. He left it at a scrapyard, took the first offer, $150 cash. In October... The police recovered the van and found traces of blood in the trunk and in the back seat. Okay, so he's like, oh, I'll just get rid of it because they're onto me, dumbass. <laughs> the police were like, 
get the fucking van. Yeah. So the DNA found inside belonged to Kinsman, as well as a ligature in which he was probably strangled with. Which literally, you get rid of your van and you fucking leave something, like a murder weapon. For real. Come on, dude. That's almost to the point of like, that's so stupid. He had to like be framed or something, right? Because no one would actually do that. No, this no, is just a just dumbass. Stupid. Take your dog, dumbass. Stupid, however, killed people for seven years. That's true. Before they were on his table. But it's because it was people of color and gay people that the police don't give two fucks about, so. Unless they happen to be someone that's well-known in the community. Yep. In November, investigators began to remotely track MacArthur's movements and monitor all of his calls. Then, in December... Police obtained warrants to secretly enter his apartment and clone his computer's hard drive. I love the warrants that these police get because they're like fucking insane. It's like they're all very specific. I know. It's like, hey, can we go in there and uh, clone his hard drive? And they're like, yeah. So on January seventeenth, twenty eighteen, police reportedly found another link, possibly DNA, that potentially connected MacArthur to two of the missing men. Oh. So at this time, he was put under 24-hour surveillance while police prepared warrants for his arrest. Yeah. So at 10.30 on the morning of January 18th, they observed, uh, the police were watching his home and observed a young man entering MacArthur's apartment building in central east Toronto. The police, even though they're still waiting on the warrant, went ahead and entered the home. They found the young man bound and restrained to a bed with a bag over his head. What the fuck? Thankfully, he was unharmed. But, you know, when they saw him walking into the apartment, they were like, this is not good. Like, yeah. they were really concerned for his safety. They tried to wait on the warrant to go through. And they're like, no, we can't wait anymore. We're going. Yeah. In. The man was freed. And MacArthur was charged with two counts of first degree murder in the murder cases of Essene and Kinsman, which was the DNA that they had found um, and connected him to. Mm. Using MacArthur's client list as a guide, the Toronto police are starting to search properties across the city. Something led them to this idea of, we've got to see, you know, where could he put the bodies? Well, he's a landscaper. We need to go visit everywhere he's ever been. Yeah. So initially it was 30, then it was 100. There's a lot of different places they're looking. Then... At a small and neatly landscaped home on Mallory Crescent, where MacArthur did work in exchange for storing gardening tools, that's where the police found the planters. Mm. They were on one of his clients' lots. Just their home. Oh my god. Their home. Okay. Jesus. So this is where seven of the victims' dismembered bodies were found, and the remains of an eighth victim was found in a ravine uh, just behind that same property. Did he just occasionally be like, oh... Martha, I wanted to add another planter to your property. Yeah, but actually her name was Karen Fraser. Oh. And MacArthur had worked on that home for 10 to 12 years. So yes, he literally would just come and go. He was their gardener. He was their landscaping person. And, you know, she and her husband, they said they'd never seen anything as much as a temper on him. Like never any moment to assume that foul play was going on, especially on their property. God, those that I feel for them because like they're going to look at their garden even though the planters are gone they're going to look at it every day and be like there were fucking That's bodies where they there. Were. Yeah. There were God. there were eight dead bodies on our property. Yeah. And the fact that MacArthur kept going back to the same place yeah. is very interesting to me because he had opportunity to place these bodies or pieces of bodies in so many different places and he yeah. didn't. He just like was comfortable with probably knowing exactly where they were. 
And not having to yeah. remember, like, oh, I put the foot at the McKinsey's place. And well, I put and the honestly, it could be one Johnson's of those place. that he would know, you know, if if he spread them out, then what if one of the houses they spread it out that he doesn't go to anymore? They're like, oh, we're going to redo the, the garden. Yeah. You know, they dig up the planter because they don't want that anymore. Find a body and they're like, oh, my God. Well, here's the guy that put the planter in. So, uh, you know what? That's and maybe they totally know that fair. Karen and her husband... If there was ever any garden work to do like that, well, they would just call him. Yep, and so. they did. So in the following months, six additional charges were filed for the murders of Navaratnam, Kehan, Fazi, Mahmoudi, Liswick, and Kinnagarsnam. So additional men started to come forward, and they were admitting that they had survived um, some pretty intense submissive role play in which MacArthur had become pretty violent. Mm-hmm. Uh, MacArthur would use online pseudonyms and he would tell these prospective hookups. He was looking to see how much you can take and wanted to push you till you can't take any more. So he's a pretty violent sexual sadist, essentially. Yeah. And, um, you know, the men that came forward would discuss the various acts of sexual violence they experienced with MacArthur. So the evidence was just further stacking up against him. From that hard drive that they copied, photos of the victims taken after their deaths were found on his computer. And each victim had their own file folder. Many of the photos taken after death were the bodies, you know, posed with fur coats and props. And there was actually a ninth folder that contained images of the man that the police found bound to the bed. Oh, my God. So he was, they he was literally saved his life. They literally saved his life. Minutes to spare. Yeah. Probably. God. Authorities collected 1,800 exhibits and 18,000 photos from MacArthur's apartment. Damn. So then MacArthur went to trial. Mm-hmm. And the prosecutor on the case was Michael Cantlin. And he said the cases ranged from 2010 to 2017. And they involved sexual assault or forcible confinement. And the bodies were hidden and dismembered. Yeah. Several of the victims were apparently strangled. And that was... Um, With like the ligature they found in his car, right? Yeah. Yeah. At least that was the one used on Kinsman, supposedly, but but something mm, of that sort. mm. So MacArthur pleaded guilty on January 30th, 2019, to eight counts of first-degree murder. Mm, So, like, less than a month ago. Yeah. No, I remember that. Yeah. Hearings occurred during the following week, and that's when prosecutors laid out the details of the crimes committed by MacArthur, mostly being the dismemberment of his victims and how he buried their remains in the planters. And because... Many of the facts presented were so lurid, prosecutors cautioned people against remaining in the courtroom to hear it. Wow. And on February 8th, 2019, so like a week ago, two weeks for listeners, he was sentenced to life in prison with the chance of parole after 25 years. Which, when you told me the sentence for Michael, I was like, what? Because Michael got life without the chance of parole. Mm -hmm. MacArthur could have parole in 25 years. And Justice McMahon said in court that if MacArthur had been younger, the judge would have accepted the prosecutor's recommendations to extend the period before a parole hearing to 50 years. But he said that even if MacArthur sought parole at 91, the chances of his receiving it would be very remote at best. Yeah, but the fact that it's still still possible kind of drives me fucking insane. Um. But, you know, as the court case finally came to a close, his motivation still remains completely unknown. We don't know why he did it. Really? 
no idea. You can make plenty of assumptions. Yeah, because I would assume that maybe, you know, the first one was part of a sexual role play that went too far and then he realized he really liked it. But yeah, no, it's all just assumptions. Yeah, because it's not something where, you know, he would have sexual encounters with these men and then feel guilty about it and kill them. He'd already come out. Like, he was known in the community. He lived in the gay village. Like, But then it could also be one that, like, he was also just real racist as fuck. And since he lived in the area, that was like the, you know, if he's racist against people of Middle Eastern, Indian, and South Asian descent... Well, yeah. and he lives there. Oh, okay, they'll, these guys are here, so I'm going to murder them. Or maybe that's like his type and it's a sex thing. Well, and as far as like racism, nothing I found came up with that as a cause. So that's, you know, to each their own interpretation. But so that is the case of Bruce MacArthur, who is Canada's like super, super recent serial killer. Yeah. Which is not something you hear about in Canada. That is true. So, okay. but Shit. postmortem. Yeah, let's jump into the postmortem. I find it extremely interesting that we both picked cases from Canada yeah. when this topic was one that could have been literally, literally anywhere. Yeah, anywhere, anything. We I know, discussed and we at picked... the beginning how bodies being hidden is kind of a part of when you kill someone. Yeah, it's well, and you step also, number two, hide the body. You also discussed the beginning of your case just. How low the murder rate is in Canada. So just the fact that we both picked that. I know. Yeah. And both picked cases that were recent. Yeah. Like mine was the early the, 2000s. But and mine was like. 10 minutes ago, basically. Basically. Um, so that is very interesting and definitely adds to this comparison when you think about how rare this yeah. type of crime is yeah. in Canada. I mean, mine was like a serial killer. I know. Like a literally right now. That's another thing. Okay. So, you know how Golden State Killer was just caught. Mm-hmm. And yes, he was just caught now, but his crimes took place over like 40 years. Yeah. Other serial killers? Like, I am trying to think, and I know there are some that happened in like the 2000s, but like literally the from DC like 20, sniper. 2010. Yeah, I know. That was fairly recent, too. Yeah. And that was like 03, I, I think say, so. Something like around early 2000s. Yeah. But this one is within the like last 10 years. I mean, yeah. No, I, I and there's can't something off the top of my head think of... I think of a lot of mass killers, but as far as serial killers go... Ooh, I'm going to say something really creepy. Wow. As far as serial killers go, we haven't caught them yet. Ooh, yeah, that is fucking creepy. Okay. Yeah. But like, that's kind of where we are with how recent this is. And yeah. You know, the fact that he hid eight bodies on one of his client's properties, someone who trusted him and who, I mean, worked with him for 12 years. That's fair and all. Um, I mean, your case is absolutely insane. Mine, however, just the sheer audacity of how, like, proud this dude was of murdering his girlfriend yeah and but that like the how clever and detailed and just in-depth this sting oh, no, operation it was, was it was amazing like at just how smart it was because everything had to go right at all times and just damn and yeah. also the fact of them knowing for so long she's murdered she's right here 
we can't give that family peace, even though we know exactly how to. Or give them, maybe not yeah. give them peace, but give them as much. But mm. but it would have been at the expense of them never no, receiving real peace. No, I mean, yeah, no, I peace. get it. But I'm just saying, like, how difficult that must be. Um, Just saying. It's hard. And as far as Michael being, like, this cocky son of a bitch, like, yeah, so are a lot of people who murder I people. I mean, yeah, no, that's fair. Um, What do you think? I mean, I think mine. I mean, I think mine. Well... I mean, I'll agree with you, though, on this one. I think mine did, but... See, not that. Just the eight people and just... Someone's freaking home. Yeah. An innocent victim's home. Well, and, like, I mean, there were so many innocent victims in in this case. I will say, though, the fact that you did find a murder that was literally... She was buried in a graveyard is... I know, because that's literally what everyone says. I know. Like, that... And you're like, and it's happened, because people do it. Yeah. But I will definitely pick the wine for next week. Okay. Oh, I'm sure you will. I will um, pick the topic again, then. All right. All right. Well, I think that was... A very interesting episode. Let us know what you think. Uh, Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Mm -hmm. And um, also just like and follow us on social. Yeah. Make sure to um, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Check out our website. Check out our merch store. Remember again. Don't forget that code. Yes. Enter the code between February 21st and February 25th. Uh, Just at checkout, enter the code SAVE15 for 15% off your entire order so all right well thank you guys for listening yes thank you uh, so much this is blood and wine signing off xoxo bye you guys bye bye